Luke chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there... I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his spend of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of a little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, 
where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The word of the Lord. We are in a series on a long section in the middle of the Gospel of Luke that's known as the travel narrative or the journey to Jerusalem. Basically, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified and to rise from the dead. And as he's going along, he invites his disciples along the way with him to teach them what it means to follow him. In other words, it's kind of like a spiritual road trip. And that's kind of huge for us, actually, in our culture, because the idea of life as a journey of spiritual transformation is incredibly appealing in our culture. We all want to go on a spiritual journey. Jesus is inviting us on a spiritual journey. And I know that when I phrase it like this, we're probably all thinking, oh, yeah, I want to go on a spiritual journey. It sounds very cool, very chic. Um, We want to go on a journey like this, especially when we understand something else really significant about the Gospel of Luke. There are four historical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, they all tell the same story, but they tell the story in different ways. They emphasize different things. One of the main emphases in Luke's Gospel is that it is by far the most what we would call woke of the Gospels. Luke has a tremendous emphasis on issues of justice, social justice, class justice, racial justice, and especially economic justice. Jesus talks over and over and over and over and over again about money, which means there's really no way to study discipleship in the gospel of Luke without hearing what Jesus says about money. And I know that's kind of a buzzkill, We're like, hey, can we go back to the part about the spiritual journey? (laughs) Oh, what about the part about justice? We like that part too. Let's talk about spirituality and justice. Can we just talk about that stuff? Jesus is saying, yeah, no. In fact, this passage that we just read is one of the, the best places to do a deep dive on some of the most challenging things Jesus ever said, but also some of the most transformational things. You know, we all want to go on a spiritual journey. We all want to be more engaged in justice, but we really, really don't want to talk about money. Jesus is saying, then you can't really follow me. Because that reluctance to talk about money actually is a sign of a much deeper spiritual problem. Do you ever worry about money? Do you you ever suffer from economic anxiety? The room just got really quiet. Of course we do. We all do. What if there was a way to grow spiritually, be more engaged in justice, and to worry less? Would you be interested in hearing about that? Jesus is showing us here. Let's ask three questions and see what Jesus has to say. What is the problem? What are some signs of that problem? And what's the remedy? What's the problem? What are some signs or symptoms of that problem? And what's the remedy? Okay? First, What's the problem? This whole scene begins when someone in the crowd says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, in that culture, um, 
the lion's share of any inheritance always went to the older brother. So this is probably a younger brother, and, um, and he's upset because his older brother is refusing to share. So this guy actually probably has a very legitimate grievance. In many ways, this is a cry for justice, which makes Jesus' response all the more jarring to us because he says, man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? On the surface, this sounds kind of harsh, um, kind of like Jesus doesn't really care about justice. It you know, leaves us a little confused. We're a little bum-fuzzled by this. Um, but Jesus is saying, yeah, you've got a justice problem, but even more than that, you've got a heart problem. And if I were only to solve your justice problem, not only would that not solve your heart problem, it would make it worse. What is that problem? Well, it's not just this man, it's all of us, because Jesus immediately turns to the crowd and he says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Now, covetousness is kind of a good old English word, but that just means greed and materialism. And In fact, Jesus is telling us, two things here. First, he's saying we all struggle with this. And secondly, he's saying we all have a tendency to be blind to it. So, I mean, I'm guessing even now, maybe some of us are probably thinking to ourselves, yeah, I know there are a lot of people in the world that struggle with greed and materialism, but not me. Jesus is saying, especially you. Part of the problem is thinking that we don't have a problem with this. So you notice how he puts it in this passage. He says, take care and be on guard. You know, it's not just take care, you know, a single warning. It's, it's take care and be on guard. There's a double warning here because we tend to be doubly blind to it. Jesus is saying we all struggle with this and we all have a tendency to be blind to it. But why is that? It's because we have a distorted view of life. So for instance, look once again at verse 15. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. But why? He tells us the reason. He says, for life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. You see, Jesus is saying the root problem is a distorted view of life. That's our basic problem here. Um, Jesus says life is more than possessions. And you notice he says the same thing a little bit differently down in verse 23. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Our problem is not just that we're materialistic. It's that our materialism is a sign of a much deeper problem. It's a distorted view of life. What does that mean? Well, let me give you an image. Uh, imagine you're walking in a forest. You're, you're, you're in a beautiful path. You're surrounded by trees. Everything's beautiful. You're walking down the path, and all of a sudden, you come to a fork in the road. And now you have a choice to make. You can take one path, or you can take the other path, but you can't take both. You've come to a fork in the road. Oftentimes, we look at life, and we see a divided view of life. That means that we often look at life, and there's the material and the physical over on one side, and then there's the spiritual over on the other side. It's a divided view of life, a fork in the road. Um, this division is present in every single culture throughout the history of the world, but it's very easy to see in our own culture. For instance, when we say things like, you know what, spirituality is wonderful. It helps a lot of people. But the most important thing about spirituality is finding something that works for you. Notice that we rarely say the most important thing is finding what's true. 
we say the most important thing is finding what works for you. The reason is because as a culture, we've already decided what's true. And what we've decided is true is that spirituality is, is helpful, but, but it's like an optional accessory. It's a consumer option, but it's not essential to life. That is a divided view of life. We have the material and the physical over on the one side and the spiritual over on the other side. A divided view of life is a distorted view of life. We have a tendency to look at, at the world and divide it into the material and the spiritual. And we think of the spiritual as being an optional accessory to life. But the physical and the material is the really important part. It's kind of like, and this is a really silly example, but I, I couldn't get it out of my head this week. It's kind of like, you know, a Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head. You know, the main thing is the potato head. We have a tendency to think of spirituality as like, well, you could put glasses on that potato head or not. Or you could put a mustache on it or not. We have a tendency to think of spirituality as the optional accessory, but the physical and the material, that's the potato head. That's the most important part. That is the most essential part. And I'll prove it to you. Um, are you up for a little thought experiment? Let's make a mental list of spiritual practices and things that aid you in those spiritual practices. So for instance, one spiritual practice might be prayer and meditation. And then an aid to that practice, I don't know, it might be something like a candle, something like that. So you've got your mental list going, spiritual practices and aids to those practices. Um, another one might be something like, you know, studying scripture or reflection, and an aid to that practice might be like a Bible or a journal. Or maybe you're picturing a quiet little chapel where you can kneel and pray. Or maybe a nature hike where you can reflect and worship God in nature. Or maybe it's a yoga mat. I don't know. You're probably picturing all kinds of different things on your list, but I will buy a free cup of coffee for anyone who has a checkbook on their list. Or your Venmo app. Or a stack of cash waiting to be distributed among various needs. None of those things, I'm willing to bet, are on our list of spiritual practices and aids to those practices. Why? Because we have a divided view of life. The, the material and the physical over on one side and the spiritual over on the other side. You see? For instance, um, notice that Jesus says life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. In other words, life is more than food and clothing and possessions. But notice that Jesus does not say it's less than those things or other than those things. He's saying life includes those things. Don't make the mistake of, of thinking that life is a division between the, the material and the spiritual. I mean, Jesus even goes on to tell us that God knows you need these things. It's not like life is devoid of those things and that the spiritual life doesn't include material, physical things. Jesus does not give us a divided view of life. Instead, he gives us a attention. In, instead of a fork in the road, um, Jesus really gives us a view of life that's more like a tug of war. You know how in a tug of war you've got two teams and they're pulling on either side of a rope? And you know, it's really hard to be on one of those teams. You're pulling and you're tugging and you're struggling and you're agonizing. It's really hard to be one of those teams. But you know what's even harder to be? The rope. 
It's really hard to be a rope. The rope is what holds both of those things together. Friends, to be human is to be a rope that is holding together both the material and the spiritual. That's hard. That's attention. And, and our desire, our, our instinct is to want to resolve the tension or to dissolve the tension by letting go of one side or the other and focusing on one side or the other because it's hard to hold those two things together. But when we do that, we end up diminishing and distorting what it means to be human, which is both material and physical, held together in tension. Friends, Jesus is showing us that we all have a tendency to be blind to greed and materialism because we all have a tendency to look at life in a divided way. Therefore, we don't see materialism as a spiritual problem, and we also don't see our money and our material goods as having any real role to play in our spiritual life. And that leads to our second point. We've just talked a little bit about what is the problem, but secondly, Jesus is saying, hey, what are some signs or some symptoms of this problem? There are actually a lot in this passage, but let me just highlight three big ones. And the first one is this. The first sign of greed and materialism in our life is thinking that our money is ours, that it belongs to us. So notice Jesus tells a parable. In verse 16, he begins by saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, will you notice, uh, first of all, here's what this means is this rich man had a surprisingly large crop, a, a bumper crop, a surprisingly large harvest. But notice that um, Jesus says, the land produced plentifully. In other words, the rich man really had nothing to do with it. It was completely unexpected, completely a surprise to him. It, it just falls in his lap as a sheer gift. Secondly, notice his attitude toward this unexpectedly large surplus. He says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So he says, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods, and then I will say to my soul, relax, eat, drink. His attitude is, is that everything, his life, his body, his money, his possessions, his goods, even his very soul, it's all his. It all belongs to him. That is a sign or a symptom of greed and materialism in our life. And, and when we say that, you realize we are on a head-on collision with our culture, especially Western culture, which says that your life, your body, your money, your property, your possessions, it all belongs to you. And you have absolute total autonomy and sovereignty on how to dispose of those things. That um, idea actually has been with us for centuries. It comes to us from... John Locke, um, not the character on the TV show Lost, but the English philosopher for whom that character was actually named. John Locke, in his second treatise on civil government centuries ago, he argued that our bodies belong to us, and therefore, everything we produce, our labor, our money, our possessions, our pro the, all of that, that stuff belongs to us as well. That idea is one of the core ideas in Western liberalism, and it's been that way for centuries. It's so ingrained into us that we wouldn't even dream of questioning it. It just feels like second nature to us. This man, this rich man in this parable, he's a Lockean. 
He thinks that everything he has belongs to him. Jesus is pushing hard against that and saying, no, that everything you have, your body, your soul, your money, your possessions, your material goods, it's all on loan to us from God. And it's to be used in service of God and service of others, not in service of ourselves. The first sign, Jesus is saying, of greed and materialism in your life is thinking that it all belongs to you. Secondly, the second sign is um, that, that greed and materialism have a tendency to isolate us from community. This is actually a, a pretty scary one. Um, if we go back to the parable, notice that um, in this parable, this that Jesus talks about this guy. He has a large crop. It's a surprise surplus of crop. But notice Jesus says he's already rich. He's a rich man, which means he already has enough. He already has more than enough. And now he's got this surplus in his life. But will you notice that the thought never occurs to him, wow, I've got a surplus. How can I use this surplus for the benefit of the community around me? The idea that he might use his possessions for the benefit of the community around him, it never occurs to him. And in fact, this comes out even more later on when Jesus is describing how this guy is processing this question of what to do with his surplus. You know, Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. There are all kinds of little details that when you start thinking about what he's saying, it's mind-blowing. But notice Jesus says, well, he thought to himself, he thought to himself, now what am I going to do with this? Now that may not seem like much of a big deal to us, but here's why this is such a big deal. Um, Kenneth Bailey was a uh, brilliant New Testament scholar. He was also an expert in Middle Eastern peasant society. He, he lived in the Middle East for decades and lived in peasant society all over the Middle East. He was a brilliant scholar. Um, Kenneth Bailey says that in the Middle East, whenever someone has, even to this day, a big decision to make, they have, they'll always go to the city gate and they will talk about it with the elders at the gate. It's a very communal society. No one would ever dream of making big decisions like this all on their own, all by themselves in isolation from community. But that's exactly what this rich man is doing. He thought to himself, I'm not going to involve anyone else in this decision. If you think that your money and your possessions belongs to you, then of course, then your decision about what to do with that, you're going to think that decision also belongs to you. And you're going to be isolated from community as a result of that. But if you think or believe that your possessions belongs to the community around you, do you ever invite other people into your lives, wise people who know you, with whom you're willing to divulge your financial assets and your financial practices. And understand something, I, you know, Jesus is not saying, and I'm certainly not suggesting that you need to pull your neighborhood on how to spend all your money. He's not saying that, but are there wise people in your life? Are there people that you're willing to share to be open and honest and transparent or do we clench up when we think about money? Do we clench up when we think about what we're going to do with it? I'm not going to talk to anybody about this. This is my money. I'm going to do with it what I want. Another sign that greed and materialism have a grip on our hearts is when we're isolated from community and we don't talk to anybody about our money. Now, there's one more sign that I'm going to talk about that Jesus gives us. Uh, a third sign that greed and materialism have a grip on our hearts is when we think that there's only one kind one kind of greed or materialism. So if you notice in verse 15, Jesus says, be on your guard against all covetousness. Now notice he says all covetousness. 
In other words, there's more than one kind. There's more than one form. So he tells this parable about this rich man who's actually prideful about his money. He's gloating over his money. Eat, drink, be merry. I'm so proud I have all this money. But then if you notice, Jesus goes through and he shows us different forms of greed and materialism. So if you look at verse 24 in the next section, Jesus says, hey, consider the ravens. They don't store their food in barns. This is a kind of materialism that it's not being prideful about money. It's actually worrying about money. This is a kind of materialism that it, it never is generous. It never spends any money. It just socks it all away in the bank and saves it up because it's so worried that, that it's looking to money for a source of, of control and security in life. Another form, if you uh, go on just a little bit farther and look at verse 27, Jesus says, consider the lilies, how beautiful they are, how glorious they are. Even Solomon in all his glory isn't as beautiful as one of these lilies. This is a kind of materialism that it's not prideful about money. It's not worried about money. It's wasting money on clothes and stuff that make you look good or give us pleasurable experiences. You know, the, the clothes, the cars, the possessions, um, the status symbols. That, that, that is what this materialism is looking to, um, to money for. You, know? you see, Jesus is giving us all kinds of different signs and symptoms of greed and materialism in our heart. Do you think that your money belongs to you? Do you make your financial decisions in isolation from anyone else in community? Do you look to money, uh, are you prideful over money, looking to it as a way of knowing that you're somebody? Or do you worry about money because you're looking to money as a source of control or security? Or do you waste money? Do you spend over and beyond your means because you're um, using money to buy stuff that makes you look good or gives you fun, pleasurable experiences? All of these things are signs and symptoms that greed and materialism have a grip on our heart. Now that leads to our last point. We've talked about what is the problem, a divided view of life that, that blinds us to the reality that materialism is actually a spiritual problem. We've talked about some signs and some symptoms of that problem. But lastly, what is the remedy? How does this get healed? What's the solution? You know, greed and materialism, Jesus is showing us, it's a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual sickness it comes from having a distorted view of life. So how does Jesus address this distorted view of life? He takes us another level deeper. The reason we have a distorted view of life is because we have a distorted view of God. And so in order to get a healthy view of life, Jesus says, you need to get a healthy view of God. So he gives us spiritual disciplines that help change the way we see God and change the way we use our money so for instance, you know, I don't know, you know if you may be familiar with some of these, but we have categories for things like emotionally healthy spirituality, or we have categories for things like relationally healthy spirituality. We should have a category for economically healthy spirituality. We are not divided beings. We are in tension between material and physical. Those things, all of it goes together Economically healthy spirituality is a valid category for us as we think about our spiritual lives and practices. In fact, Jesus is urging it upon us here. And so he's giving us spiritual disciplines to help cultivate economically healthy spirituality. Now, what is a spiritual discipline? A spiritual discipline is creating space in our life for God to work. 
It's creating space in our life for God to work. Spiritual disciplines themselves are not the work of transformation, okay? God is the one who works in us. God is the one who transforms us. Spiritual disciplines create space in our lives for God to work. So things like prayer or silence or solitude are ways of creating space in our life for God to work. What are some practices or spiritual disciplines that Jesus gives us for an economically healthy spirituality? Well, the first one is we have to get a different view of God. We have a distorted view of life because we have a distorted view of God. Getting a healthier view of life means getting a healthier view of God. So look at how Jesus does this. He says, hey, consider the ravens. He says, consider the lilies in the field. If, if God cares for those things, how much more will he care for you? I, you know, I was thinking about this this week, and I realized this is actually kind of like an ancient form of cognitive behavior therapy. You ever heard of that? Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT for short, it's actually one of the most effective modern treatments for depression. And what it does is it addresses distortions in the way we think, distortions in the way we view reality. So examples of that might be something like catastrophic thinking, everything is horrible. Or black and white thinking, everybody's against me. Or emotional reasoning, I feel something is a certain way, therefore it must be true. Distortions in the way we think, distortions in our view of reality. CBT is a way of confronting those distortions and giving us new tapes, new views of reality. Jesus, brilliantly, thousands of years ago, but of course it's because he created us, so he's the one who wired us. But Jesus here, he's giving us like a gospel CBT. He's applying God to our anxiety in the same way that you would apply ointment in a wound. I mean, don't you? We're worried, aren't we? We're anxious and fearful, aren't we? I am. I, I get worried. I get anxious and fearful about all kinds of things, not just money. You know, and I don't know what it was like to live in the ancient world. But as far as we can see, it looks like our world is getting more worried, more anxious, more fearful, certainly more lonely and addicted and depressed and suicidal. And there's no doubt a multitude of reasons for that. But I would suggest one of the main reasons is we're living in an increasingly secular society. Secular means not that we don't believe in God. Secular means that we have pushed God out to the margins, that we have marginalized God out to the outer boundaries of our life. And when we do that, because God is an optional accessory, spirituality is an optional accessory, instead of being in the center of our life, we've pushed God out to the margins of our life. Anytime we do that, don't you know, we're going to be anxious, we're going to be worried, we're going to be fearful, we're going to see breakdown in our lives and in our society. Of course that's what's going to happen. Jesus is saying, bring God back into the center. Bring God out from the margins and back into the center of your life. Notice he does it not just through addressing our thinking, our cognitive faculties, but when he says, consider the ravens, consider the lilies, that's our imagination, which, which actually has the power to get down into our emotions as well. Jesus is brilliant here. He's saying, you've got you to gotta learn different ways of imagining the world. Attend to reality. And then bring God into the center of that attention process. Reflect on reality and bring God into the center of that reflection process. So look at the birds. Look at the, the flowers. 
Or, you know, thousands of years later, we know so much more about the universe. Look at the fine-tuning of the universe. And then bring God into the center of that and say, well, if the universe is this way, if the world is this way, what does that tell me about God? We're addressing the distortions in our thinking about God by bringing him into the center. Jesus is giving us spiritual disciplines, ways of creating space in our lives for God to work to address the distortions in our views of God. That's the first thing he does. But secondly, Jesus gives us disciplines for changing the way we use our money. And you see that if you go down to um, verse 32. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, let's make sure we notice the order of these two things. Jesus does not say, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And then God will give you the kingdom. And then God will take care of you. That's actually a very religious way of approaching life. In fact, it's a very distorted, divided way of viewing life because we're back into that divided view of life that says, oh, the spiritual life, that means giving things up for God. That means that if you, if you do the right thing, if you obey your duty, if you're a good person, if you're generous, then God will love you. Then God will take care of you. It's a distorted view of God, a distorted view of life. Jesus says, no, no, no. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. God has already given you the kingdom. He's already promised to take care of you. Now, as a result of that, you can be generous. You can be more outgoing and, and, and let your treasures flow towards others in the world, okay? We gotta get the gospel straight. But secondly, notice that Jesus does not say, um, do away with your money or get rid of your money. If we think that, again, we're back into that divided way of thinking. We're back into those distortions about spirituality that says, oh, the spiritual life, that means giving things up for God. Renounce the world. Renounce money. That's what it means to be spiritual. Jesus is saying no. He's not saying get rid of your money, do away with your money. Look at how he says it. Sell your possessions, but give to the needy. You know what that is? That's not getting rid of your money. That's deploying your money. That is a strategic deployment of your resources for the well-being of your community and for justice in this world deploying your resources. He's not saying sell everything you have, by the way. He's saying, hey, when you, fought, when you build some margin into your life, if you have uh, you know, what you've got to work with, are you creating space in your life for God to work? Are you saying, I'm going to set this here, I'm going to set this here, but this here, this goes to God, this goes to his purposes. That is a spiritual discipline. That means you have to create space in your life to do that. That doesn't just happen without thinking about it or doing something about it. In fact, I would say it like this. If, if there was one thing that I would want you to walk away with this morning, it would be this. Economically healthy spirituality is not a question of doing away with your money. It's a question of what you're doing with your money. Economically healthy spirituality is not a question of doing away with your money. It's a question of what you're doing with your money. Are you being intentional? Are you creating space in your life? Seeing the way you use your money as a spiritual discipline. So for instance, maybe that means you have some work to do on getting your budget under control or your spending under control or, or your debt under control. And I understand we're all in different places we all have different circumstances in our life. You know, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but are we being intentional? Are we being focused about that? Maybe if you're not giving anything at all right now, 
You know, maybe it means beginning by just setting aside one or two percent of what you have and doing it regularly in the same way that you think, well, spiritual discipline and prayer means that I pray regularly, then I should be generous regularly. But it's building up that discipline in your life, creating space for God to work in your life. And please, I always feel like I, I should say this. I don't care if you give to this church. God provides for this church. They're generous people who've made this their home. I do care if you're giving somewhere. I do care if you are being generous somewhere in your life, if you are developing these practices of, of spiritual generosity in your life. It means creating space for God to work in your life. And when you do that, that means that that begins to eat away at the anxiety. That, mean, that begins to eat away at the worry. That actually begins to cultivate generosity in your heart. But the most important thing of all to remember about all of this is that, um, that our generosity, our giving, our discipline in this area is not a way of getting God's love in our life. You know, there are a lot of motivations that we can have for giving. And, and most of them are not very healthy. And in fact, churches tend to... Um, really uh, wield a lot of these motivations very effectively, things like fear or guilt or playing on your pride or your sense of duty. The, I, if we're honest, you know, let's face it, those are the reasons most of us give most of the time. We're afraid, we're guilty, you know, that's why we give. But God doesn't want us to give out of that. He doesn't want us to give out of a sense of duty, but a, out of a sense of delight out of a sense that, that we have been given so much, our giving should never be a way of getting God's love in our life, but a response to the love he's already given to us. How does that happen? You notice Jesus ends this passage with those very famous words, um, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, and at one level, of course, when he says your treasure, he's talking about whatever it is you might love most deeply. And that could mean many different things. But let's not spiritualize this away and, and miss or ignore the primary context. Jesus is talking about money here. That means that, that your riches, your treasure, most easily and most naturally flow towards whatever it is you love the most. Now let's think about this. Realize God has riches. God has treasure. I don't know what that is or what that looks like. Can you imagine? But whatever it is, our earthly riches, our earthly treasure are, are a mere shadow, a mere glimmer of the kind of riches and treasure that God has. When Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's talking about an eternal, abiding, enduring spiritual principle. Do we not think that that spiritual principle would apply to God as well? that this is a spiritual law, spiritual principle that is true throughout the universe. If Jesus, it's true for us, how is it not true for God? Where do we see God's riches and God's treasure flowing out towards the object, the deepest object of his heart's deepest desire? On the cross, friends, Jesus Christ gave up a crown of glory, traded it for a crown of thorns. He abandoned a throne in heaven in order to get you because you are his treasure. So that on the cross, Jesus Christ looks at his little flock. He's looking at you, 
racked with worry, crippled by fear, imprisoned by shame, afflicted by depression, haunted by loneliness, frozen with anger, weighed down and burdened with any number of things that are burning up your heart. I don't know what they are, but he's looking at you and he's seeing you as his treasure. His treasure is flowing out to you. His blood, his precious blood that's worth infinitely more than anything in this world, he poured it out for you, not just one or two percent, but all of it, because you are his treasure, you are his riches, you are his heart. And the more that becomes real to you, the more you experience that by gazing upon Jesus on the cross in your heart, letting that impact your imagination, letting that impact and transform the way you see God and therefore the way you see your life in this world, the more that happens, the more that begins to get to work at your heart and does the work of transformation inside of you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How does God give us the kingdom? By giving us Jesus. Economically healthy spirituality is not a question of doing away with your money, but what you're doing with your money the more you see Jesus on the cross making you his treasure, the more your treasure will very naturally and most easily flow out for him. Let's pray.